of those passages that can be kind of tricky. It gets misinterpreted all the time. All the time. People are all over the place on this one, and there are you know, pe- these fringe groups of Christianity. I call them fringe groups because I'm trying to be nice. Um, <laughs> they, they take this verse to mean something that it absolutely does not mean. Uh, it means exactly what this song that we just sang is, is about. So we're going um, to cover that today. Well, you know, having come this far in our study in the book of Mark, I think that we can say with all certainty that Mark has made it abundantly clear for us that following Jesus is not a walk in the park. It's it's no easy task. Uh, It requires a heart that is completely surrendered, completely sold out for Jesus. It requires a willingness to put aside the desires of the flesh that we were born with, that we grew comfortable with, that we've lived out through our lives, and that we see people fulfilling around us, things that we see people living for around us. And you know, this week, um, as those of you who follow me on Facebook, um, you probably caught a glimpse of how difficult it can be for even, even someone like me as, as a pastor. You know, when a friend I've had for, for 22 years now uh, decided to accuse me of being overly judgmental towards scantle, Im- images of scantily clad women. Um, it, it, one of my Facebook friends, and, and I use that term you know, kind of loosely here, it's somebody that I, I've never conversed with, but apparently he listens to me, I'm guessing, uh, on BibleStudyPodcast.org, I don't know, but um, this, this friend uh, subscribed to some women who look like they are probably either bikini models or they're pornographic actresses. And as a result of his subscriptions to these people, um, a lot of these provocative images started showing up on the side of my Facebook page as people that Facebook recommended that I subscribe to since one of my friends is subscribed uh, to these people. Uh, Facebook's approach is basically that uh, this guy and I are friends, so we must have things in common, so the things that he's subscribed to must be things that I would be interesting in, uh, in subscribing to as well. And just to, make, just to set the matter straight, uh, I have no interest in having images of half-naked women pop up on the side of my computer screen. Uh, even if that's what it, you know, even, even from a friend, even if it's just from a friend who doesn't mean for that to, to be there, I have no interest in those things showing up. And so what I did is I, I issued just kind of a general warning to, to the friends of mine who are, are listeners to my podcast, and I said, you know, look, I'm giving you a week to, cl- to clean this up, and in a week, if I'm seeing that I'm being, uh, that Facebook is recommending that I subscribe to these people because I am friends with you, I will unfriend you, uh, since if nothing else will stop the images from popping up, that will. Uh, I, I just take the purity of my mind that seriously, and I know that that road, I know exactly where that road leads, and I just don't want to go there. And so this old friend of mine decides to chime in and accuse me of being judgmental and whatnot, and not caring about that type of person, uh, the scantily clad women. Uh, And he said that I was sending a message that I wouldn't want to help, or I wouldn't be open to helping anyone who came through the doors of our church wearing trashy clothes. And of course, he's wrong. I would be interested in helping anybody who comes into our church uh, seeking help or, or needing help, but if it's a woman dressed in a bikini, the first thing I'm going to take care of is make sure that some of you women get some clothes for her, get her dressed appropriately, and then we can proceed from there. But, um, you know, taken to its logical end, my friend's argument was basically that I should endorse pornography in case a pornographic actor or actress comes through the doors of our church so that I don't offend them. It's ridiculous. But what I realized 
after this conversation, and you know, I, I stood my ground, you know, you, you don't want to get in a heel digging contest with me, I can really dig my heels in. Uh, but what I realized after this, um, after this conversation was that I may as well have been trying to describe the color green to a blind person. You know, I don't have a sense of smell. Uh, I have something called uh, anosmia. And um, so I can't smell. And so sometimes my wife will say, oh, it smells so good outside. And I'll say, well, what does it smell like? And she's like, I, I can't describe it to you. Like, it smells like rain. I'm like, well, what does rain smell like? You know, it, all I have is taste and sight and feel, but I, I have no idea what uh, smell is like. So she can't describe things uh, the way things uh, smell. So it's exactly the same situation with this friend. You know, it, he may as well have been trying to describe for me uh, what the smell of rain is. Um, it's the same, same thing. You know, and I was reminded of what Paul wrote in the first chapter to his letter at the church of Corinth. He said, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And he goes on to say, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It's from the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians. And honestly, the conversation that I, that I had with this friend was difficult for me because I value that friendship. I mean, we've, we've been friends for 22 years. Of course I value that friendship. And it just breaks my heart that he couldn't understand the importance of avoiding something that might just cause me to sin. It didn't cause me to sin, but what if? I, I don't even go there. If there's a what if, it's like I, I just I cut it off. What, uh, you know, would those images cause me to sin? They didn't, but hey, I'm, I'm a guy. I know how guys are wired. Guys are visually wired. So I don't even want to go down that street because that's a slippery slope that leads in a direction that I just don't want to go. So I, I guard my mind. And he didn't get it. He's guarding your mind. How judgmental. In fact, throughout this conversation we had, he showed me a side of him that gets bitter and, and hostile toward God, which was even more heartbreaking for me. It hurt. It's not easy. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And by the way, one of the things that I pointed out to him was that unfriending someone who, uh, who opens the door to temptation is a valid application of what Jesus had said back at the end of Mark chapter 9, that if something is causing you to sin, deal with it. Don't just keep sinning, deal with it. In fact, it's best that we deal with it before it causes us to sin. If we think that it even might, we should deal with it. And Jesus instructed us to cut off our hand or cut out our eye or cut off our foot if these things are causing us to sin. And of course, those, you know, doing those things won't stop you from sinning, right? Those things aren't going to stop us from sinning. He wasn't literally instructing us to maim our own bodies. He was telling us to judge ourselves correctly, get rid of the sin in our lives, deal with the sin in order that we may maintain our purity so that we can serve others purely. James said this. He said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's James chapter 1, verse 27. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Is that easy? No. But it's not easy following Jesus. Now, in case we missed the connection, not long after Jesus instructed us to do what needs to be done to sever ourselves from things that cause us to sin, Jesus instructed this young property owner, which is maybe Mark. I think it was Mark. There's no, uh, no, no uh, solid evidence for it, but there are some good indications that, that it was Mark. But Jesus instructed him to do just that. Sever yourself from what is causing you 
to sin. Now, Mark thought that he had lived a good life. When he comes to Jesus, he comes proud and boasting of the fact that he's maintained all of these commandments, right? And he thought he was a good enough person to receive eternal life. But Jesus pointed out that there's a sin in his life that he needed to find a way to sever. And he would do that, Jesus instructed him, by selling all that he owns, giving it to the poor, and following Jesus. That would be what would be necessary to free himself from the snare of sin that he was caught up in. And that's what would be required to follow Jesus and thereby receive eternal life. The thing that he could not get in his current condition that he wanted, that's what he had to do to get it. And so Mark tells us that this man, Mark or whoever, went away grieving. And the reason for his grieving was that he owned much property. So do you see the connection between avoiding sin by disconnecting from the source and what Jesus has instructed this guy to do? You know, if there's one thing that confuses both non-believers and, and various groups of believers alike, it's the issue of money and prosperity. Money and prosperity, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, I am fairly strongly inclined to think that there are a lot of people who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus who would receive, who would receive the same instruction from Jesus that this poor young or poor young, rich young property owner God. We would be foolish to think that only this guy in all of history gets this instruction. No, I think that there are a lot of people in churches today that would receive the same set of instructions. Jesus would say, if you want to follow me, you've got to trade your devotion in for devotion to me and follow me. Jesus said that if we want to receive the kingdom, we have to do so with the faith of a child. But we saw that money and possessions make that really difficult for us to do. And I was reading an interesting uh, article this week. It was a study done uh, in Atlantic Magazine, um, 2012, this year. It noted that in 1900, less than 10% of American families owned a stove or had access to electricity or phones. Less than 10%. In 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. In 1930, less than 10% of families owned a refrigerator or a clothes washer. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or air conditioning. In 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or a color TV. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. In 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or access to the internet. And of course, these things, we look at these things and we're like, really? Those are like the Stone Ages. What did they do without those things, right? But the article concludes by pointing out that, quote, today at least 90% of the country has a stove, electricity, car, fridge, clothes dryer, air conditioning, color TV, microwave, and cell phone because we think they make our lives better. They might even make us happier, but, it concludes with a sentence, but they are never enough. See, as adults, we have a tendency to make our lives about things, the wrong things. And as we get older, what happens is we, we tend to view luxuries as necessities because they make us comfortable. And we love, we love comfort. But this young property owner was no different. He'd made his life about all the wrong things. And those things were preventing him. They were an obstacle that was preventing him from receiving the most valuable treasure of all, and that is the kingdom of God and eternal life. But that's not where the story really ends. As this guy goes away grieving, Jesus continues talking about this subject of money. He, he, the man's gone, but Jesus is now addressing the disciples. So we pick it up in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
So is Jesus saying that someone who's wealthy can't enter the kingdom of God? Uh, that's, that's one of the questions that we're going to be addressing today. But first, he wants them and, and us to know that money and material possessions will have a tendency to pull people in the wrong direction. That money and material possessions won't pull people closer to God, they'll pull people away from God, the wrong direction. So the more money you have, the more natural of a tendency it is for a person's life to suddenly become all about things like money and power and influence and pleasure and things like that. And let's be honest, we like those things, right? We like money, we like power, we, we like comfort and pleasure, and there's nothing that's necessarily wrong with any of that. We're going, to t- we're going to cover that by the time we're done today. But all of those things can be either properly used or those things can be abused. And it is much, much more likely that if we have those things, they'll be abused than they will be used in the proper context. Now, having spent a good portion of my life in the casinos in Las Vegas, I probably know better than most people the effect that money will have on people. Um, Trust me, I'm not even kidding. I had a front row seat to witness this day in and day out. Witness the way that money changes things for a person, changes a person's attitude, changes their heart. Uh, Only Jesus knows this principle better than someone who's made a living in a casino for uh, for a significant part of their life. You know, if, if a guy is at a table and he's down to his last dollar, man, everybody, the dealer included, everybody's his best friend. Everybody's listening to him, and you know, he, he's like part of the group. But the moment he gets on a winning streak and those chips start piling up, man, you become his slave. Not just the dealer, but I mean, the everybody, everybody around him becomes his slave. He is suddenly superior to everybody. And I'm I'm not kidding about this. I saw the same thing every day for years. And that's the difference that money can make in a person's life if they're not really, really careful about it. Because once you start treating everyone like they're your slave, uh, do you have a heart to serve or to be served? Which is more likely? The, the more likely scenario is that you want to be served because you have money. It's a no-brainer because it's impossible to treat people like they're your slave and at the same time desire to serve them, right? And yet Jesus has instructed us that if we want to be great, we have to have the attitude of being willing to be the least. We have to serve. We have to serve. Money is one of those things that tends to make people feel entitled, though, and entitled people expect to be served rather than having a desire to serve others. By the way, one of the, one of the great things about children, we were talking about having the faith of a child last week and what exactly that means. One of the great things about children, even children from very wealthy families, is that money hasn't had time to corrupt them. Money hasn't had time to create this sense of entitlement in them yet. They don't care about money anywhere near as much as adults do. They don't see things through a lens of social class and and things like that. It's much more natural for them to just see people as they are and to care about the person rather than how much money that person might have or which social class that person might be in. Uh, and and when, I, when I think about this, I think, you know, I, I will never forget the time when Maddie was, was very little, um, that every time we would drive by a car accident or every time we'd see an ambulance driving by or maybe we would just hear a siren, um, you know, before I would even notice it, Maddie would already tell me, I said a prayer for them. Wow, my, my life is so busy that I can't even notice 
what's going on around me. See, that's the difference between a child and the innocence that a child has and an adult who's focused on everything else that's going on around them. But man, that was a serious wake-up call for me. But maybe the best illustration of the effect that money can have is the condition of our own country. I mean, here we are, America, the beautiful. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That much isn't even up for debate. We are incredibly wealthy as a nation. Most people, however, they want God's blessing on our country. They want God's blessing in our our lives, but they don't want God in their life. You know, one of the songs that almost everybody knows is God Bless America, and, and we claim to be a, a Christian nation, whatever that means. I won't go into that right now. But yet, at the same time, we systematically have shut God out of our schools. We have systematically shut God out of our courts. We have shut God out of any public arena we possibly can. And the result is that over the past 100 years, I mean, you can see this, it's all documented. Over the past 100 years, our nation has flushed biblical standards of ethics and morality down the toilet. And yet, over these past 100 years, this is when we've experienced this great boost in prosperity. It's the same time that we've flushed these things down the toilet. We've embraced genocide. We've minimalized God's word as much as we possibly can to the point where we openly applaud the sins that God calls an abomination. We have flushed God down the toilet as the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. We do all these things and more. And don't think for a second, don't think for a second that our country's prosperity has nothing to do with the way that we're treating God. And the same people who are guilty of all those things are more than happy to sing, God bless America. Isn't that ironic? It's ironic. You know, what we need to understand is that prosperity can all too easily become the mother of all pitfalls. Listen, prosperity is, is okay when it's kept in check, but prosperity is, is more often a curse than it is a blessing. But boy, do we, we love prosperity. America loves prosperity, and this is what Jesus is saying here. When he says that it's difficult for wealthy people to receive the kingdom, it's very easy for their money to distort their self-perception, their perception of others. And, and you know, if, you're, if your perception of others is affected that way, it, treats the way, or it, it affects the way that you treat them. It makes you not want to serve them, and that makes it increasingly difficult to have the type of humility that's necessary to enter into and receive the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. We have a tendency to see people with a lot of money as being overprivileged. You know, you look at somebody and you say, wow, that guy, wow, how privileged is he to to drive a car like that or to have a car like that? But what Jesus is saying here is that that person is not overprivileged. Rather, they're at a great disadvantage. They're extremely underprivileged for that reason. So let's continue, verses 24 to 26. The disciples were amazed at his words, and I think a lot of people are amazed at his words when they read this. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. 
Now, I want to issue a little bit of a warning here. <laughs> I'm just going to start out by saying I am not going to beat around the bush about what Jesus is saying here. Uh, I am fully aware of the fact that you, know, you can read some uh, liberal commentators or you know, watch the History Channel and they'll tell you that, you know, we're not talking about a, a, a needle here, not like a sewing needle. No, what they're referring to here is uh, this, this gate that came into the city that was about four feet tall and it was extremely narrow. And yeah, if you wanted to get a camel through it, boy, that would be a lot of work. Uh, the evidence in favor of this interpretation, cultural, contextual, whatever kind of evidence you want to look at, the evidence is extremely slim. Uh, and it would be the only time in all of Scripture that a gate is referred to as something other than a gate. So no, Jesus is talking about a literal needle here, like a sewing needle. And so the disciples, at first, they're amazed at Jesus' words. They're amazed to learn that it's difficult for a wealthy person to receive and enter the kingdom of God. Why are they amazed, though? Why are they amazed? It's because they've fallen into the same type of thinking that, that Job's friends had, where, you know, if you're wealthy, if you're prosperous, it's because God's blessed you, and if you're suffering or if you're poor, it's because God is cursing you or he's mad at you for something. And the disciples have been trained to think that there was this direct correlation between prosperity, financial prosperity, and God's blessing. But Jesus is saying here, that is absolutely not the case. And so, therefore, the disciples are amazed at Jesus' teaching. And so Jesus repeats what he had just said. But notice, by the way, notice that he, in his response, refers to them as children. Right after he just talked about entering the kingdom as children. I think he's trying to throw out a little bit of a hint, but at the same time, he might be saying something about their condition and how their, their hearts are changing. And so he says, children. And this is the first time that Jesus has referred to them as that. Uh, and he's doing it right after teaching about having the faith of a child in order to receive the kingdom. So Jesus tells them again. He says, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Right here, Jesus is not talking about wealthy people. He's referring to all people here. How difficult, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He's not singling anybody out. He's talking about everybody. It's difficult for any person to enter the kingdom of God. And ironically, you know, we're the ones who make it difficult. We're the ones who make things uh, complicated. God asks for something as simple or as difficult uh, as a wholehearted commitment to Jesus. And we resist as if we'd rather have things that we'll eventually lose or lose interest in rather than receiving and entering into a kingdom that will never perish and will never be broken. Again, that's, that's humanity in general that Jesus is referring to here. It's hard for anyone to enter the kingdom. But then Jesus goes on to narrow in his focus. He goes on to say that it's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. That is what he's saying. Yeah, it's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. And I told you, I'm, I'm not going to beat her on the bush with what Jesus is saying here. I don't care how big the eye in your needle is. It might be big enough to thread uh, you know, an anchor rope through. I don't know. But you're not going to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It is absolutely and unequivocally impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And I understand that that is difficult for a lot of people to swallow. And I understand why people want to maneuver their way around this text so that it means something completely different. But that's what Jesus is saying here. It's just as likely that a wealthy person enter into the kingdom of God on his own terms than it is 
that a camel go through the eye of a needle. And every time I, I read this, this passage, I'm reminded of uh, a story. Um, Caleb, when he was uh, four years old, five year, he was five years old, and his neighbor was also a little girl. She was maybe a year older than he was. And they were talking about what they want to do when they grow up. And the little girl next door says, I don't really know what I want to do, but I want to be rich. And Caleb says, he turns to her and he says, oh, you've got to be careful if you're going to be rich because it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. And I thought, wow, there is something special about my son. I don't know where that came from, but that is the faith of a child, that they would see that door and no, no hesitation, he's going right through it. But, you know, that, that's exactly what the disciples understand Jesus to be saying too. And thus they, go, they, they actually they move on. They, they kind of graduate from being amazed to being astonished. There's a big difference between being amazed and being astonished. It's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Who can be saved then? That's, that's what they're wondering. That's what they're thinking to themselves. Who can be saved then? But the question, the real question here is this. What is it about wealth that makes it impossible for a wealthy person to be saved? It's because wealth corrupts the childlike qualities that are required for a person to enter into and receive the kingdom. Wealthy people are not inclined to feel like they are in need of God's providence. They feel like money can just take care of it all. That's, that's one reason. People who, who feel entitled, people with a lot of money tend to feel entitled, and people who are entitled aren't humble. Prosperity is what makes them feel entitled. So instead of being concerned about, you know, where their next meal is going to come from, like a poor person, you know, they got, that's what they got to be thinking about. Where's my next meal going to come from? But an, a wealthy person, what they're thinking is, where am I going to eat my next meal? Or what do I want? Or with whom am I going to eat? So instead of being concerned about primary things, they become concerned about secondary things. And they do that with everything in their life. And what happens is it turns into a lifestyle where everything is secondary and everything becomes a lot more uh, comfortable for them because they don't even have to worry about the first things, the, the primary things. So they get comfortable and they're on top of things in life. And by the way, that's exactly why the suicide rate skyrockets every time there is a financial meltdown we have a tendency to think that money is going to free us up to do things. Money is going to give us freedom to live life the way that we want to live. But Jesus is saying that money does not free you up. Money makes life complicated. It ties you down and enslaves you. And the complications of prosperity make entering the kingdom of God difficult because the attitude that you have to have if you want to receive and enter into the kingdom as the attitude of being willing to surrender all for Jesus. So when the stock market drops, God's in control. When something bad happens, God's in control. When you've got a tumor in your brain, God knew that this was going to happen. So you don't have to worry because you know that God is in control. And that is the kind of trust that he wants from us. We have to have this attitude of being willing to lose everything, especially if whatever that is, is causing a hindrance in our relationship to God and our obedience to him. Prosperity also has a tendency to render a person completely unteachable. I mean, what's the point in, uh, in learning when a person already feels like they have everything they need or want? And if they don't have it, well, their, their money can buy it. 
See, in order for a person to be teachable, they have to assume that somebody else is superior in some sense, knowledge, to them. Prideful people uh, tend to have a really difficult time with that because prosperity has a way of creating a false sense of authority in a person's mind. Now, listen, I'm not trying to insult or, inf- uh, or offend wealthy people here, and I know uh, a lot of wealthy people who are very teachable, but if you look at the big picture of wealthy people in general, you see that wealthy people who are teachable are actually the exception. They are not the rule. Now, we could go on all day about the detrimental effects of wealth on a person's ability to receive a kingdom, but hopefully you see the point. The point is that... Uh, all these things, whatever, whatever uh, corruption might happen, it all stems from money, and it corrupts our childlike tendencies, the childlike qualities that we have to have in order to receive the kingdom. And so thus, Jesus is saying it is impossible for a wealthy person to receive it. Impossible with men. Impossible with men. Not with God. God's grace is always greater than our faults and failures. God can always break down. He being in control of the universe, you know, you, you get these privileges. God can break down any obstacles that we place between us and Him. Any obstacles that prosperity creates, He can get through them. He can humble a person, man, when nobody else can. God can teach us, any of us, to rely on Him instead of prosperity. And if anyone, wealthy or poor, is willing to trust Jesus for their salvation, if they can humble themselves enough just to do that, to come to God on His terms, God's eager to entrust that person with the gift of eternal life. God's grace is always greater than our greatest weaknesses, no matter what those weaknesses might be, whether it's wealth, addiction to drugs, whatever it might be. God's grace is always greater. It might be impossible for you to convince a wealthy person to be humble, but that's not impossible for God. He can do it. Part of the difficulty for a wealthy person might be that they have to come to Jesus on the same terms that a poor person does, by faith and with humility, often after being broken. As someone, I'm talking about myself here, as someone who desperately needed to be broken, and humbled at, uh, at one point in my life and who resisted humility for a lot of years, all I can say is, man, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he is able to do what is impossible with men, to humble even the proudest of the proud. God's grace, God's grace can make hope possible with impossibly hopeless situations. And I can only imagine the response of the disciples here. You know, I imagine that it was stunned silence. And whenever there's this stunned silence or awkward silence, there's one disciple who tends to, you know, speak up, and he tends to put his foot in his mouth when he does. Uh, of course, that would be uh, that'd be Peter. Peter always has something to add to the conversation, right? And so Peter chimes in here, verses 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The first thing I want to point out here is that Jesus has not 
rebuked Peter. He didn't say, no, you didn't. You haven't left everything to follow me. No, he, he's saying, don't worry. If you, if you have really done this, there's a payoff coming. There, there, there's a reward for it. And so, you know, I, I find it kind of funny, but um, at the same time heartbreaking, that this is one of those passages that the false teachers you'll see on television will use when they tell you that they want you to send in your last dime. You know, they, they wear $5,000 Armani suits. So that might be a little bit on the cheap side. Uh, and they tell their audience that they, you know, that the reason they live so large is because that's what God has rewarded them with for their faithfulness, right? So send in your money and sow that seed of faith, knowing that if you send us a check for 500 bucks, God will pay you back 100-fold. Only the enemy of God. Seriously. Only the enemy of God would twist the meaning of this passage to mean that, especially in light of what Jesus has been teaching about the pitfalls of prosperity. What makes it even more pathetic is that Jesus promises more than just blessings. He promises persecution as well. They, they leave that one out on their little sales pitch at the end of, of their programs. So this passage absolutely does not mean that if you faithfully give financially to God, you can expect that same dollar amount back 100 times and that your life is just going to be a walk in the park. Uh, Jesus is promising persecution here. He's promising it. And, uh, you know, starting around the first century, Christians took the opposite, uh, the opposite interpretation of this. They took it to mean that uh, they had to sell everything that they own in order to receive the kingdom. And so what you had for the first couple of centuries is Christians who would sell absolutely everything because they took this instruction that Jesus gave to Mark to apply to everybody universally. But what we need to understand is that this might have been Mark's cross to bear. This was Mark's cross to bear, which is why Jesus pointed it out. But different people have different hindrances when it comes to God. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's pride. You know, it can be a a ton of different things. But I would say that, uh, you know, it very easily could be money, that these things can create hindrances to God if we don't keep them in check, but it can just as easily be anything else as well. It just depends on the person. So this interpretation isn't correct either. I'm not here to tell you, yeah, if you're going to be serious, you can't be wealthy and you, you've got to sell all your stuff and, and then follow Jesus. No, that, that's absolutely not correct either. See, the, the key to understanding this passage correctly, to understand what Jesus is saying here, is what he ends it with. He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, first to do what? Many of the first will be last. First to do what? Well, what did Peter just say that they had done? They'd given up everything. They'd surrendered all in order to follow Jesus. And so Jesus is saying that sometimes the first to give up everything will be the last, and sometimes the last to give up everything will be the first. And so what we need to understand here is that Jesus isn't talking about external or material or financial things here at all. That's not the issue. Misuse of material possessions or a sense of entitlement that money gives people, those things are not the disease. Those are symptoms. That's the way that the disease shows itself. But those things themselves are not the disease. That's just the way the disease reveals itself. The disease is addiction to self. And because a person is addicted to their self, They refuse to depend on God. And with that said, Jesus is revealing the way that we should perceive the things that we have, the attitude that we should have toward all the things that we have. Are we using them for the sake of glorifying ourselves? 
And don't think for a second that wealthy people aren't tempted to do that. Are we using it to glorify ourselves or are we seeing the things that we're blessed with as ultimately belonging to God and we want to use those things to bless others and for the sake of the kingdom? If everyone took the attitude that what they have ultimately belongs to God, that it's all God's and we're just stewards, there wouldn't be this increase in the suicide rate when God takes those things away or allows for those things to be taken away. See, if we, if we perceive money the right way, if we have the right attitude toward money, money does not define our self-worth. Money is not who we are. It's just something that we have, maybe for a season, maybe for longer. That's in, in God's hands. But let me ask you this. You know, where is your self-worth found? Is it found in your things? Or is it found in the fact that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you? Man, would you die? Would you intentionally die for somebody that you didn't care about? Yeah, neither would I, and neither would Jesus, but he does. That's where self-worth is found, knowing that God values you so highly that he would give his own son's blood for you, for you. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we'll receive a hundredfold return? Well, notice that he says that we'll, re- we'll receive both now, that is, in the present age, and in the time to come, which is the future. Now, if I have a, a 100% return on, on $1, what do I end up with? $2. I end up with $2. Yeah, I end up with $2. Yeah, there you go. I end up with a return of $1, which gives me $2. Now, a hundredfold uh, return uh, would, would be a return of several thousand percent. And honestly, it's been too long since I took a math class for me to figure out exactly what that percentage is. I just know that it's some kind of enormous return. And that's what Jesus is saying here. There is an enormous return, an enormous reward that you'll receive for following him. It's a figure of speech. This, this hundredfold uh, is, is a figure of speech that Jesus is using to tell us that in exchange for giving up everything that we have, to follow him, putting him as our first priority will be repaid with something more valuable, more worthy than we can ever imagine. What Jesus is saying here is that you will receive spiritual blessings for material sacrifice. He doesn't say that you'll get paid back exactly in the same form that you gave. He wants to give you something that's of much greater worth, much greater value, a place in the kingdom paid for in full by his own blood. This is, the, this is the type of return on an investment that would be impossible with men. Listen, if I gave you a dollar and said, I want a hundredfold return on this, how many of you would take me up on that? I've got a dollar in case you are. <laughs> Nobody would. That's the type of thing that is impossible with men. But it's possible with God. And that's the good news of the gospel that we should be sold out for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we find this passage difficult. It causes us to really wrestle with what you're saying here. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would teach us to be completely sold out to you, that we would place no obstacles, no hindrances between you and us, but that you would wipe those things away, and we know that your grace is big enough, we know that you're strong enough, we know that you know what those hindrances are, what those obstacles are that we put in the way. And so, God, I just pray that you would Teach us to be humble and that you would remove those obstacles 
Help us to be teachable. Help us to have this childlike faith that we need. That our lives wouldn't be complicated by things, but that our lives, or the purpose of our lives would just be simple. To follow you, to know you, and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.